A deeper look, exploring what works and what doesn't in development and the changes we can make together to turn ideas into action. Welcome to all our new and returning listeners. I'm Patrick Fine, CEO of FHI360, and you're listening to a Deeper Look podcast. Before we get started, I'd like to remind you to subscribe to this podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts, and please leave a review. We'd love to hear from you. This year, we're taking a deeper look at humanitarian crisis and emergency response. And in this episode, we're going to discuss U.S. and international policy governing humanitarian assistance. I'm very fortunate to have joining me today one of America's most experienced and respected actors in the realm of international development and humanitarian assistance, Professor Andrew Natsios. Andrew, welcome to the podcast. Patrick, it's nice to see you again. Listeners who follow U.S. foreign policy will be very familiar with Andrew Natsios. He's been a major force shaping American ideas and initiatives in international development for more than 30 years in senior positions in academia, government, and the nonprofit sector. Currently, Andrew is an executive professor at the Bush School of Government and Public Service and director of the Scowcroft Institute of International Affairs at Texas A&M. Go Aggies! <laughs> Professor Natsios was a Republican representative in the very blue state of Massachusetts. Andrew served in the first Bush administration as the head of the Office of Foreign Disaster Assistance. Following a stint at World Vision, the U.S.'s largest private faith-based development organization, Andrew returned to Massachusetts. He gained a reputation as a turnaround specialist for rescuing the U.S.'s largest ever infrastructure project, Boston's Big Dig, which, by the way, is now a marvelous piece of architecture in the Northeast. At $15 billion, it should be. Well, it, <laughs> it's become iconic. Yes, it has. Yes, it has. He returned to government as the USAID administrator, the head of USAID in President George W. Bush's administration, where he held the post for five years, one of the longest serving heads of USAID. I recall when I was at USAID, Andrew used to describe himself as a career politician, and the USAID career staff would say, you may be a politician, but your heart and your head is in development, which was a fitting recognition to Andrew's commitment and savvy in dealing with U.S. foreign policy and the U.S.'s development mission. Dr. Natsios later served as special envoy to Sudan, where he was instrumental in negotiating the agreement that led to an independent South Sudan. He spent 23 years in the Army Reserve, achieving the rank of Lieutenant Colonel, and is a veteran of the Gulf War. He's the author of three books and numerous influential articles on international development, and he is the perfect person to share insight and perspective on America's approach to humanitarian assistance and emergency response. Andrew, I think it's fair to say that we're in a period of profound change and transition in the world and in how the U.S. sees its role in the world. Do you agree, and what does it mean for U.S. policy on development and humanitarian assistance? I think there are three critical periods since 1940, or since the Second World War. One was the immediate aftermath of the war when the international system and the global economy was created basically by Harry Truman, uh, Senator 
Arthur Vandenberg from Michigan Republican and um, George Marshall when they designed NATO, the United Nations, the uh, World Bank, or the International Monetary Fund, and made a commitment to free trade and an open trading system that was, was, was rule-based. The second period was when the Soviet Union collapsed. And that was in 1989. That's correct. And then the third period we're going through now, and I have to say I am very troubled by what I see. And I, I think people personalize this, and they they see this embodied in President Trump, but President Trump is simply responding to what he sees as trends that are going through all of the Western democracies now in a very unhelpful way. And there are four trends in the United States which are very dangerous, because the last time we saw these at this level of intensity is in the 1930s, and it led to the Second World War. No one intended that, but that's what happened. Mm -hmm. The first is ultranationalism. Nationalism and love of country and patriots is, is fine. I'm a patriot. So am I. Uh, and I love America. However, when you get carried away with it, you have what happened in Europe in the 1930s. Two, you have protectionism. Now, we've had protectionism with the labor unions on the left and the right. The far right and the far left have always been protectionist. However, now we're seeing it in policy. And, and we've seen just in January this year the imposition of tariffs, new tariffs. Exactly. If we start having trade wars... That's very dangerous because it'll collapse the global trading system. The third trend is nativism, anti-immigrant feeling. And look, I, I do think that our border area with Mexico is a huge problem. It's not just because of immigration. It's because that's where the drugs come across, the criminals that come across. But they're all poor people who are simply escaping violence in Central America and Mexico that are very legitimate, but they're not here legally. I understand that. We need to deal with that issue. But... Now we're talking about making legal immigration illegal. I wouldn't be here, and neither would you. In fact, three-quarters of the United States wouldn't be here if we had very re restrictive immigration laws. I ask people often, do you have an iPhone? If you have an iPhone, you are dependent on Steve Jobs' genius, who started Apple. Right. And who is Steve Jobs' father? He's a Sunni Muslim immigrant from Syria. Is that right? That is correct. Mm -hmm. People do not know that because he was put up for adoption. But genetically, he is half Sunni, or he was half Sunni Muslim. So uh, another thing, if you use Bose earphones, I never knew who Bose yeah. was. I thought it was an acronym. Mr. Bose is an immigrant from India, went to MIT, got a PhD. He employs 30,000 people in Massachusetts, my home state. Those are very important jobs. It's the finest technology for earphones. And he invented it. He's an Indian immigrant. I've had Bose speakers since I was in college. Well, you can thank Mr. Bose and Dr. Loyalty. Bose for that. Yeah. Yes. So we should be a little careful about talking about immigrants since that's where most of us come from. Now, my family came here from 100 years ago. I did have someone in Massachusetts once say, why don't you go back to where you came from? And I said, you mean Holliston, where I was brought up? They said, no, Greece. I said, I'm third generation. We've been here 100 years. How long do you have to be here before you're an American? So there's always a nativist prejudice in the United States, but it's always been repressed, and now it's, it's dangerous because some of the most gifted and skilled people in the world come here, and that's what moves the economy. Right. It's, in, it's created millions of jobs, economic so it's very dangerous. Dynamism. Economic dynamism is heavily dependent on immigrants, right. not just poor immigrants, but highly educated immigrants. And the message to everyone is, if you're a foreigner and I don't care what degree you have, we don't want you. That's a very, very dangerous message for the American economy mm -hmm. and for the United States. 
And the fourth trend is isolationism, that we're going to withdraw from international institutions that we created and that have created a stable world order over the last seven years. There's a book by a guy named Pinker who wrote a book on violence. And we are living, people don't believe this, but we are living through the least violent period in the last 5,000 years of world history. And he makes a historical case. The book is 1,000 pages right. thick, something like that. And he goes historically through evidence to show that this is the most peaceful time in world history, even though people don't believe that. And the second thing is, it's the most prosperous period. This is the first time that the number of people in the middle class has massively grown. It's since World War II in the American system that we created. We should be very proud of what we've done. And to abandon that system now, in my view, is reckless and very dangerous. It also points out that we're living in a period of contradictions because just as there is less absolute poverty than at any time in human history, there are also more displaced people and a greater level of disruptive humanitarian crises than at any time in, in history. human history. That is correct, 65 million people. It is going up because the chaos is spreading. You attribute this spreading chaos to these trends that you've just enumerated, I do. isolationism, it, because nativism. The, yes, because, the, well, it's, there are other trends going on. Certainly the radical uh, Islamic threat that's destabilizing Muslim societies. I mean, in Ethiopia, the Sufis Muslims helped the Christians build their churches, and the Christians helped the Sufis Muslims build sure. their mosques. They've gotten along for a thousand years until now, and, and the, these radicals are now spreading very violent ideas which are inconsistent with modern theological teaching in Islam and are very dangerous in my view. We didn't cause that, but it's happening, and it's, it's facilitating this chaos that's spreading. But the problem is, in the past, the United States would step into the breach with the Europeans and the Canadians, Australians, Japanese, and we would start an international organized effort to stop this. The view now is we need to violently stop, I mean, using military force, which right. you have to do, some of these terrorist groups. However, you have to have a rebuilding effort afterwards or the chaos will just start again. You can't separate American foreign policy from the humanitarian and development component of it because that in some ways is what creates the stability one of the policy directions that I hear the administration talking about now is the use of hard power. They've been pretty explicit, saying that they're for hard power, not soft power. Where do you see that taking us in terms of the U.S. providing leadership on humanitarian response? Well, we're still providing it. In fact, the OFDA Food for Peace budgets are the highest level they've been in history, actually. Mm -hmm. Those are the offices that deal with emergency response within USAID, which is, of course, our foreign aid agency. But that is not where OMB wants to move. OMB is cutting all those budgets or attempting to. Congress, including the Republicans, are restoring those budgets. The military wants a strong AID. Uh, Jim Mattis said that before he was Secretary of Defense, and he said it since over and over and over again. I just finished writing a 450-page book called Guns are not enough for an aid in the national interest, and it, mm -hmm. I've been working on it for eight years, and now it's more appropriate than ever. Right. And it looks at how AID is managed internally, why AID looks like it does, why our humanitarian assistance program looks like it does, what are the internal forces within the U.S. political system that have shaped, for better or for worse, 
how our aid programs are so run. So why does our humanitarian assistance program look like it does? Well, it is the one part of our budget that has consistently grown over 30 years. When I ran the Office of Foreign Disaster Assistance, we were spending around $50 million a year with 45 staff. That budget is now $2 billion with 708 staff in OFDA. Right, and even if you look last year under the Trump administration, when there was this move to slash the budget for foreign assistance, humanitarian assistance actually got a billion dollar increase. It did, in a supplemental budget. Right. And the president signed it. If he didn't like it, he wouldn't have signed it. So there is a consistent support on the far right, the far left, the main establishment parties, and the American people for humanitarian assistance, and there has been for a long time. But it continues to be under attack by OMB. So I've heard that the administration's request for its fiscal year 19 budget, so that starts in October this year, um, again requests a sharp decrease in funding for international development and humanitarian assistance. Yes. Do you think that that consensus that you're referring to will hold in the face of repeated attempts by the administration to reduce not just the resources, but reduce America's role as a leader in humanitarian assistance? I don't know what's going to happen, but I am troubled by it because these trends, it's sort of like a wave that's gathering power. Now, in the 1930s, what led to these, these trends that I mentioned, these mm -hmm. four trends, that accelerated and that led to the catastrophe of the Second World War was the Great Depression. We are now in the opposite position. Right. These trends may actually be a function right now of the recession we've just come out of. Mm -hmm. In fact, I went back to American history going back to the 1790s, and we've had four or five major economic shocks in American history, and after each one of them, there were protectionist sentiments, anti-immigrant sentiments, and isolation sentiments. Uh -huh. After this First World War, I mean, uh, people don't remember how aggressive the anti-immigrant feeling was then. When the Great Depression took place, the same thing, Smooth-Hawley uh, tariff, right. and then the immigration legislation that was extremely restrictive was put in place. And that happened in the 19th century, too. I think this could be an aftermath of that. And now that the international system is beginning to boom economically, it may be that these trends will go away. Uh -huh. Alexis de Tocqueville is the great French intellectual historian who lived in America, I don't know, six or eight years in the 1830s. Yes. And he wrote a famous book, which kids used to read. I make my students read it. Uh, democracy in America. His observations about democracy in America are the same now. They All the stuff he wrote is... He Still even relevant. Said, that's right. He even said our big rival would be Russia. This is in the 1830s. Wow. So he said in his book famously, democracies don't do well in foreign policy because they can't carry out a broad strategic vision over a long period of time consistently and strategically. The one exception to that is after the Second World War, because the Soviet Union was seen as a threat by the mass of American people, that both parties said we can't let Stalinist communism take over after we just defeat Hitler. Mm -hmm. It's not acceptable. It's an ongoing threat. And so we had a coherent foreign policy, even though there were debates. Now I'm not sure people understand what all the threats are. And I don't think people understand what will happen if the global trading system starts to unravel. Right. If it does, we're going to see famines because some countries 
that are very rich can't feed themselves unless they buy food in the international markets. If we start shutting down our food system, global food system, we cannot feed seven and a half billion people by family farms. You need large farms to feed that many people right. with a population of right, that size. Right. And you have to have a free trading system to do that. You mentioned that the U.S. military is a strong supporter for the U.S. to play a leading role in both development and humanitarian response. One of the trends that I've seen at the service delivery level is humanitarian workers have become seen by some combatants as legitimate targets. So in the past, humanitarian aid workers were seen as neutral parties, and they could deliver services to people regardless of what side of the conflict people were on. Right. Now they're being targeted as combatants. How do you see that trend affecting the way the, the U.S. and the international community respond to humanitarian crisis? Well, we tracked, when I was the aid administrator, the number of aid partner organization workers who were murdered, not died in accidents, not died from a disease, but were murdered in Afghanistan and Iraq. And we lost four or 500 in Iraq, mm-hmm. and we've lost something like 800 in Afghanistan. Right. We've never right. had those kind of, in Africa, in all the civil wars and the famines, we might have lost 10 or 12 people. People get killed by accident, and uh, there's some guerrilla soldier who starts shooting, and right. someone gets hit. But they didn't target aid workers in Africa, Sub-Saharan right. Africa. So what we saw in Iraq and Afghanistan is a dangerous trend, but some of it comes from us integrating the three Ds, the development, defense, and diplomacy instruments of national mm-hmm. power. Operationally in the field, when you start doing that, you have consequences, and that's one of them. Now, is that going to change the fact that any president, because this happened under President Obama more, actually, than under President Bush, so this is not a function of who the president is, but how we see our instruments of national power. I think too much of what state and DOD see in the aid programs is what I would call an instrumentalization of aid, which is it's a means to an end instead of an end in itself. And the new national security strategy actually describes that in some detail. I mean, it's very explicit that the reason the U.S. will provide international assistance and humanitarian assistance is purely as an instrument of U.S. power. Right. And we have done that, but we haven't been so explicit. And that space between what we said publicly and what the reality is allowed us some independence. I'm arguing in this book that I've written by instrumentalizing aid, in other words, making it a means to an end rather than an end itself, we actually damage its use as an instrument of national power. It's less successful. And is that going to come back also to affect that coalition of interests that support Well, aid? see, that's the problem. During the Cold War, we had a coalition of realists in foreign policy who do see aid as an instrument of national power in a parochial sense, a narrow sense, versus liberal internationalists who, for the sake of just wanting to save the world, I think they got carried away in mm-hmm. some cases by saying we're going to fix the whole world with American aid, which is, in my view, preposterous. So... 
the, the left gets carried away and the right gets carried but away. Those, but it was a coalition that supported aid. And some of those sentiments cut across parties. They do. Oh, so absolutely. So you had Republican members who argued, for example, faith-based organizations absolutely. that argued the moral case, that That's we have a correct. moral responsibility as well as a national self-interest. And so th this is a very complex situation in terms of the motivation. When you say what America does, what's the message we're sending? Well, we're a country of 320 million people. We don't send one message, particularly it's in a democracy with the U.S. Congress that's elected and presidents who change parties all the time and people in the administration who disagree on stuff. Right. President Bush W., the very devout Christian, he saw the ethical dimension of this, and so he made clear when I started. But he basically said, we're not going to use food aid as a weapon of diplomacy. End of discussion. Don't even bring it up. Now, we have to admit, and I argue this, that for us to say that there are no political implications to our aid programs, even if they're ends in themselves, is nonsense. I'll give you an example. There is no strategic interest in ending the HIV-AIDS pandemic in Africa. Mm -hmm. What effect has it had politically? It's made the United States very popular. George right. Bush is very popular in Sub-Saharan Africa. Right. He is seen as stopping the pandemic. Now, does that have an effect? Yes, it does. It's easier for political leaders to ally themselves with the United States because of our humanitarian programs improving the image of the United States. Now, did we do it for that? No. Is it having that effect? Yes, it is. You know, it also makes it easier for U.S. business. It does. To establish relationships. Absolutely. In the countries that have benefited from the partnership yes. that the U.S. has had to, to address HIV AIDS. I, I'll tell you, our aid program has underscored the great moral principles underlying American democracy. And I think we've been a beacon of hope for the world. And our emphasis on human rights and the protection of individual life underscores our democracy. And that's a, a wonderful ideal around the world. So it means we have more influence. I'll give you another example. After the great tsunami that hit Indonesia, Aceh mm -hmm. uh, was destroyed. 125,000 people died in a few minutes. This was in December of 2004. We ran a huge aid program because of the whole Indian Ocean, but particularly in Indonesia, massive response. And we dominated it. Mm -hmm. U.S. military was there, AID was in there, and the USAID from the American People logo. Our poll ratings before the tsunami in Indonesia, the largest Muslim country in the world, were pretty low. We had a 28% approval rating. Bin Laden had a 58% approval rating mm -hmm. in Indonesia. Mm -hmm. Three months later, we had a 63% approval rating, and bin Laden's poll ratings collapsed to 26%. The CIA told me bin Laden was extremely upset at what happened <laughs> to his poll ratings in Indonesia. That's a great example of doing well by doing good. That's exactly correct. So we can't say that our programs have no implications. Now, this is the argument I make. They do have political implications. They have diplomatic implications. However, if you want an aid program, you can't subordinate it tactically, operationally in the field to the Defense Department and the State Department. That's why we need an independent USAID. And if you're a realist in foreign policy, that's the best position to take because the programs work better when they leave us alone and let us run the programs based on good development principles. Right, and then that results in stronger relationships, more influence, Exactly. More access for our business. And a more stable country. And a more stable. So, so that's the win-win exactly scenario. Exactly, correct.
If you look at the positions that the U.S. is taking today, applying it to humanitarian crises, where you're dealing with fragile states and with, with disrupted societies, do you see us pursuing that win-win strategy? No, we're not pursuing it. You mean the executive branch in the White House? Well, I mean the, U right. the United States. But the U.S. Congress is part of the U.S. government. That's true. And the yeah. U.S. Congress does not agree with that position. Well, and there's civil society as well. Exactly, exactly. So you pointed out that we've continued to fund humanitarian response and that we continue to be the, the world leader in responding to complex emergencies. And there are many examples we could point to that are active today in the Sahel, in northern Nigeria, Yemen. in Yemen, in Afghanistan. In South Sudan. What we need, Patrick, in addition to the resources, we need leadership from the Secretary of State and the President. I'll just tell you one story. It's a mm -hmm. good story. There was a famine going on in Ethiopia in 1990. And I was negotiating with the uh, EPLF, the rebel movement that now is in power in Eritrea, with the Mengistu government. We're basically a communist government mm -hmm. that was killing its own people. It was a brutal regime. Mengistu was the head of it. There was a risk of a, hundreds of thousands of deaths. And they would not let us move food into the port of Mitsawa. I was in charge of this aid effort. This was 28 years ago. And I was failing. So we sent a note to President Bush, 41, and we said, we're failing, and these people are going to die. President Bush called Mikhail Gorbachev and said, your client state, who you provide $700 million in arms a year in Ethiopia, mm -hmm. is stonewalling the relief effort, and all these people are going to die. I said, would you please call him up? And he did, and he threatened him. He said, I will stop all arms shipments to Ethiopia tomorrow if you do not open those ports up to the AID aid. And he announced two weeks later, Mengistu, for humanitarian reasons, we have decided to open the ports. That is a great story, and it has real echoes to today. Yes. Uh, so just in January, you have the worst humanitarian crisis in a generation in Yemen. In order to defeat Iran, Saudi Arabia had a blockade of the ports. Right. And it was causing starvation. And then... Suddenly, Saudi Arabia announces that it's going to open humanitarian corridors, it's going to lift the sure. blockade, it's going to open the port so that uh, humanitarian aid can get through. Because President Trump opposed the blockade. So, so the point is, presidential leadership counts, and I'm hoping that the president will begin to feel proud, and he'll start doing that in other places and realize the greatest effort to uphold the American image in the world is right. our aid programs, right. and cutting them is not going to do that. Right. It's going to damage them. I am skeptical, but I'm willing to keep an open mind. We'll see how things evolve. Certainly does not appear that they're shifting their position by what OMB is proposing, and I am deeply troubled by it. It still looks to me like the policy position of this administration with respect to humanitarian response yes is that the U.S. provides 30% of the total That's official correct, response, right. not counting what American faith-based sure. and private organizations do. And that there needs to be more burden sharing, that the other countries in the world need to do a larger share of supporting humanitarian response. And what I wonder is what role does the administration see 
and what is the likely role of the emerging economies like well, China yeah. and India and Brazil? They've all set up development agencies. Yes, they have. But I don't see them playing significant roles in humanitarian response. So it looks from the outside like they're pursuing a very transactional yes. approach to providing assistance. Yes. To open markets, to secure resources. That's right. It's a business undertaking. It's a, right. There are nine schools of development that evolved since World War II as to why some countries develop and some countries don't. Mm -hmm. One of the theories is the theory of modernization, mm -hmm. which W.W. Wastow came out with a book in 1960, I think, on this, and it's still read. We now realize that he's partially right. You need infrastructure. You need roads and bridges and dams and electrical power and ports if you want to develop, but you need institutions, which are actually more important than anything else. The Chinese are only doing infrastructure, and that infrastructure is going to deteriorate unless you have institutions to maintain it. Do you see any effort by the international community to involve China and the other emerging powers in humanitarian response? We've tried to, and they have been uninterested. Now, I have to say the exception now is if you look at the uh, emergency response, Turkey is the second largest donor. Well, that's States. true. And they have the largest number of refugees. Yes, and that's why. The, the, reason is that the reason is they're caring for all these people from Syria and Iraq who are in Turkey. And the Gulf states have provided some assistance to Turkey to help pay for this. So it is true that some of the Arab states that are affected directly by these chaotic conditions are investing more, but that is really a parochial right. effort. I sometimes wonder if you look at efforts by the Chinese or what you're just describing, whether they simply haven't learned the lessons that the U.S. and Europe learned in the 60s and 70s, because exactly we made correct. a lot of those same Absolutely mistakes. Absolutely correct, yes, and that is exactly what it is. And my response has been, I would suggest you look at the history of this, because you are making the same mistakes we made 50 years right. ago, and you're going to have to correct them, or a country's going to throw you out later right. on. Right, right. It has long-term long consequences. Exactly, exactly. So we'll probably see some evolution I think we time. will see evolution, but not talking to them is not an option. We need to talk to them and try to bring them into the system. And I have to say, we have given up on infrastructure, which was a mistake. Terrible. The Chinese are filling it because we stopped doing it. Right. And we stopped doing it for the wrong reasons, in my view. So we've talked about the fact that the world today is facing tremendous humanitarian challenges and that the number of people who are displaced is larger than ever before and that these crises go on longer than they went on in the Absolutely. past. Do you think that the system, the international system, so the UN system, the, the combination of multilaterals and bilaterals is up to dealing with the evolving nature of the crises we're seeing? Well, I wrote a book, my first book in 1997, called U.S. Foreign Policy and the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. And that's from the Book of Revelations, right. famines, war, atrocities, and pestilence. Um, and pestilence, <laughs> that's right, epidemics. It was about emergency response and the U.S. system. And I reread it the other day. And I would say two thirds of it is all still true. But a third of it is not true because the U.N. system and AID have evolved. And gotten better and in gotten, your view. Yeah, we've gotten much better. 
uh, we just used to distribute food aid. Now we distribute money to people to buy food, which is a much more efficient system. Right. And Congress created a whole account as a result of our efforts. And that's one of the <laughs> most important reforms, say, over the last 20 years. Yes, it is. In the way the U.S. has approached emergency response. Yes. So we're seeing a lot more use of direct cash transfers to refugees and displaced people. It, it allows them to be more self-reliant, exactly. to make decisions that are more responsive to their immediate conditions, and it's more efficient. And right? much faster. And better use of, yes, of resources. And, it, it, and when people buy stuff in the local markets, they're stimulating economic activity, which restores the damage done to the economy by the chaos in the Civil War. And contributes to stability exactly. in that place. Exactly. It's, it makes great sense. And we now have a $900 million account in AID that Food for Peace runs, which, by the way... For OMB, local purchase? Yes. Uh-huh. It's almost as big as the regular Food for and Peace. And we now have. have tools because of the digital revolution, which makes it much easier to do direct cash transfer, to do direct purchase in local markets. Exactly. Uh, with a high level of accountability. <clears throat> exactly. <laughs> this is not new. Herbert Hoover saved at least 10 million people's lives in World War One. Where? In Europe. There was a mass, U.S. humanitarian Massive response. program, 10 times bigger than anything we run now. Is that right? You know who the three most uh, revered figures in Europe were between the two wars? Theodore Roosevelt, Woodrow Wilson, and Herbert Hoover. Now, we blame him for the Great Depression. He is the greatest humanitarian figure in the 20th century in the United States. He did the same thing in the Volga famine in the early 20s. He was Secretary of Commerce under President Coolidge. Mm -hmm. Lenin was still in power and Stalin, and they started interfering in the relief effort during the Volga famine. And, and Hoover said, you keep interfering, I will withdraw everybody, and we'll take all the food and go home, and you know what will happen. And they were so scared of what the political implications could be if the famine already killed a million people, uh, got completely out of hand, they left them alone because he threatened them. Right. And the U.S. Congress appropriated the money under Calvin Coolidge to feed yeah. Russians after the communists took over. He did the same thing in Russia and Eastern Europe after the Second World War, again with appropriations from the U.S. Congress. So we've been doing this for a hundred years. Literally, it's exactly a hundred years this year. Yes, we should 1918. Have a, we should have a... Um, yeah, some a, sort of commemoration. Absolutely. Of and, and so America has a long history of this. Well, and it, it's another illustration of how humanitarian response can create the conditions yes. for long-term positive relationships exactly. amongst people, communities, and exactly. states. Exactly. Andrew, thanks very much for sharing your perspective and your experience and some great stories about the role that the U.S. has played in providing humanitarian response, some of the challenges that you see on the horizon, and your commitment and your passion to the importance of the U.S. continuing to be a leader in this area. Thank you for inviting me. Great conversation. Also, I'd like to thank everybody who's joined us today. If you want to share your thoughts about what we've been discussing today, or if there are questions or topics that you think that we should be addressing on this podcast, please let us know. You can add a comment on SoundCloud or iTunes. I also invite you to listen to previous episodes of A Deeper Look, 
from both this season dealing with humanitarian crisis and emergency response or last season where we dealt with the sustainable development goals. Throughout this year, we'll continue to explore pressing issues related to humanitarian crisis. Join us next month for another episode of A Deeper Look.